Last week we made note that God takes his worship very seriously. To that we would add also that this week we see that the Lord takes faithfulness seriously. Furthermore, there, these two are not disconnected from one another. Romans 12.1 tells us that our lives, even our own bodies, are to be a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable to God. A life of faithfulness to God. But it is our holy and living sacrifice that comprises our spiritual service of worship. See, our worship isn't just what we do on Sunday morning. Rather, your spiritual service of worship is what you believe and what you think and what you do all the time. It is faithfulness to God. And the Bible teaches that if you are faithful to God, you will be blessed. But if you are not faithful, you will be cursed. See, what you believe about God and how you respond to that belief, that is your religion. And as we'll see, worship and religion go hand in hand. God blesses true worship and true religion, but he curses all that is false. And that comes in many varieties. Some are caught up in false religion, pure and simple, whereby they offer false worship to a false god. And frankly, that's any religion that finds salvation in anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ alone. And then there's those who are caught up in self-made religion, self-made religion. So true worship of a false god. And Paul warns against this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, where it's where a person devises their own rules and their own religion within themselves as the focus. And in this way, they are offering so-called true worship based on their own rules, but the false god, again, is themselves. And then there's hypocritical religion, false worship of a true God. And this is the situation that Israel finds themselves in. And this is the problem that Jesus comes to confront in Matthew chapter 21. So turn in your copy of Scripture with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 begins with what we know to be Passion Week. It's the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And we've been seeing for several weeks now, we'll continue to see, the beginning Palm Sunday is when he rides into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and fulfills messianic prophecy regarding the arrival of Messiah, of the Savior. And from then, Matthew records that Jesus goes and he purges the temple, driving out all the merchants who are profaning the worship of the temple. And now we come to this third symbolic action, if you would, the cursing of the fig tree. Each of these three acts, the triumphal entry, the temple cleansing, and the tree cursing, they represent the Lord's judgment on apostate Israel. And they set the tone for what's about to happen in the coming chapters, which culminates in the death of Jesus in chapter 27. We know he's resurrected on the third day, but all of these trials are leading up into his crucifixion. But if you could summarize all three of these symbolic acts, it might be something like this. He came, he raged, he judged. That is the purpose, the point of these three symbolic acts. And why did he do so? Why did he come and rage and judge? Well, because the Lord was expecting to find faithfulness when he arrived in the holy city. 
There's the old verse in the Psalms that says, when the Lord, when, the, when God comes to the earth, will he find faith on the earth? In this case, he did not find faithfulness in Jerusalem, in the holy city of Zion. Instead, he finds only wickedness, faithlessness, and apostasy. And so this morning, we're going to be examining this third symbolic act. What does Jesus do when he comes to his own people? We see this in Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 18. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Now, As we've been seeing, as we've been going here, Jesus doesn't stay in Jerusalem, the city itself, during the Passover, but rather he goes to the neighboring town of Bethany where he has several friends. And so every day he would get up and he would travel the two miles or so to Jerusalem. He would preach and minister in the city for the day, and then he'd make his way back to Bethany at night uh, to uh, go to sleep and visit with his friends and things like that. So verse 18 notes that Jesus is returning to the city in the morning. Mark notes that this is Monday morning, the day after the triumphal entry. But he gets up early. He makes this two-mile trek with his disciples. And on the way into the city in the morning, the Bible says that he became hungry. Now at first glance, you might think this is a, a minor detail, but, but truthfully, it reminds us that our Lord is most certainly man, even as he is also divine. Hebrews 4.15 teaches that Jesus is just like us in every way, that is, of course, except for sin. But regarding his humanity, we know that he thirsted. In fact, we see him asking the Samaritan woman for a drink of water in John chapter 4. Likewise, in Matthew 4, during his wilderness temptation, we know that he becomes very, very hungry. The same here. Maybe Jesus skipped breakfast that morning. We don't know. But on the road, he, be, he became hungry. And thankfully, providentially, he sees a fig tree off in the distance along the way. In fact, Mark notes in his gospel that Jesus sees it at a distance. And so he's walking down the, the path and he sees off in the distance this, this fig tree all by itself. And it is a lone fig tree by the road. What is interesting, though is that in the telling of his version, Mark specifically notes that it was not the season for figs. It was not the season for figs. Truthfully, figs grew and blossomed at several times during the course of the year. But at that time in Israel, right around April, no one would have been expecting figs to be in season. However, Jesus sees from a distance a full fig tree full of leaves. And what would that tell him? Well, generally the leaves would appear just after the figs have grown. And so a fig tree loaded with leaves would have been a sure sign that there was fruit hanging from the branches. And considering that he was hungry, he would have been excited and anticipated arriving at this tree and finding something to eat. 
Verse 19 notes that he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. Well, this would have been an obvious disappointment. A fully blossomed tree with no fruit. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 19, he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Basically, he cursed the fig tree. Now, over the years, and I've read commentary about this, liberal scholars have taken issue with Jesus over this. In truth, they always find a reason to complain about Jesus. It doesn't matter what the situation is. That's just what non-believing textual critics do. But here they've made notice that, well, the figs weren't in season, so Jesus, he shouldn't have expected to find fruit. And so it's not the fig tree's fault. I read that this week. Furthermore, they also accuse him of malice in cursing the fig tree. Oh, how shame on you for, for cursing the, the poor tree. It didn't do anything wrong to you. But let's work backwards here. Let's think about this together. Does not the creator have a right over the creation to do what he wills with it? Amen. He creates the fig tree. He's allowed to curse the fig tree and stop it from producing fruit. Frankly, if you think about it in the context of the narrative, it's better that he curses the fig tree than every single person alive in Israel, right? So the fig tree is a better judgment at the moment than the entire city. But beyond this, there's more going on here. Beyond this, he expected to find fruit because he saw all the leaves. And from the outside, the tree looks like it's loaded with figs. And yet it's already barren. It's already barren. There's nothing on it. And so all Jesus does is dispose of a useless tree that was already not producing anything at all. And so this isn't a tree with little fruit. This is a tree with no fruit. But let me just tell you that there's more going on here than Jesus' issue with a tree. Far more going on. In fact, this is highly symbolic. Highly symbolic. Backing up a little bit here, figs were plentiful and desirable in Israel. They symbolized prosperity and blessing. In fact, Israel was likened to a fig tree in Isaiah 28.4 and Hosea 9.10, a beautiful, bountiful tree that was supposed to be providing fruit plentifully. Yet during times of apostasy, Israel is also likened to a fig tree that produces no fruit. And so when the Lord comes to Israel, his fig tree, and sees it barren, he responds with anger and a curse. In fact, we read about this in Micah 7. The prophet laments the sinfulness of Israel during his day. And he cries out, woe is me. I am like the fruit pickers and the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, nor a first ripe fig which I crave. So Micah saw this problem hundreds of years before. He's like, I'm like a, a fig gatherer, and there's nothing to gather here. Channeling the, the cry of Micah, Jesus tells a very shocking parable in Luke chapter 13. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is him even before this thing happens. A certain man had a fig tree, which, he'd been which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree and without finding any. And then he says this, Cut it down. 
Why does it even use up the ground? Jesus had told this parable, but in actuality, he had spent his whole three-year ministry looking for fruit in Israel and not finding any at all. And so on this fateful morning, after three long years of ministry, three long years of looking and searching for fruitfulness in Israel, traveling everywhere all over the nation of Israel, going outside the bounds of Israel to some of the Gentile territories, traveling everywhere he could to try to find faithfulness in Israel. And now he's five days from the cross, and Jesus symbolically now does what God is planning to do in reality, to judge Israel. But why? Why would he do this? Why would he come to, these, to this people and judge them? What was he looking for? He was looking for the fruit of faithfulness. You see, the Lord had commanded Israel, you shall have no other gods before me. But they had been dabbling in paganism for centuries. The Lord told them, you shall not make for yourself an idol. But Israel had become rife with idolatry even worshiping themselves in their pride and arrogance. The Lord commanded, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. And yet they had profaned his name by doing wicked deeds and even claiming to be doing those deeds in his name. The Lord commanded, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And yet they had invented all kinds of Sabbath laws that went contrary to the teachings of Scripture that actually hurt and oppressed God's people. The Sabbath wasn't revered in Israel, it was feared in Israel. The Lord commanded them to honor your father and mother. But the Pharisees, they were stealing from their own parents, leaving them destitute, all while calling the money korban, devoted to God. The Lord commanded Israel, you shall not murder. But they had been plotting the murder of Jesus for a year, and they'd carry it out in five days. The Lord commanded, you shall not commit adultery. But the men of Israel were were serial adulterers, divorcing their wives for no good reason at all, all in a technicality. The Lord commanded, you shall not steal. They were robbing widows' houses. The Lord commanded, you shall not bear false witness. But they were all liars, and even Jesus tells them, you're like your father the devil, the liar. The Lord commanded, you shall not covet. But at that point, all of Judaism had become a scheme to oppress the poor, obtain wealth and power, and to become the envy of other religious people. And so, even by these Ten Commandments, if not more, the whole system had become corrupted and diseased. What's worse is that on the outside, they looked holy and pious and respectable. They appeared to be fruitful. But when the Lord comes to His people... All he saw was a tree full of leaves and no fruit. And so the Lord declares in the spirit of Jeremiah 8, I will surely snatch them away. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaves shall wither, and what I have given them shall pass away. That's what was prophesied of them. And he had done this to them at the Babylonian captivity, but he would do it again this time at the hands of the Romans in 70 A.D. And we know by looking ahead in time that 40 years later, just as Jesus prophesied, the Romans through the general Titus Vespasian would lay waste to the city, 
kill 100,000 Jews and destroy the temple. Judgment was coming. And this cursed tree, the, the cursed fig tree, was an ominous sign of that future. Verse 20. Seeing all of this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? Now, what's interesting here is that Matthew jumps right into the disciples' response while Mark, in his account, actually structures the the narrative a little bit differently. For the sake of the meaning, Matthew includes their response right in verse 20 immediately after the, the tree has been cursed. But Mark actually tells us that as far as the timeline goes, because Matthew seems to be working more thematically here, but Mark has the timeline. Here's how the timeline goes. Jesus curses the fig tree on his way into the city on Monday. Then later that morning, he cleanses the temple. And it's not until the following day, when they're coming back into the city, that the disciples are walking by and they see the fig tree completely destroyed. It's at that point that they say, how did the fig tree wither all at once? Because just the day prior, it was a a green and leafy and beautiful tree full of And today it's completely dead, rooted, rotten to the root. Well, how did this happen, they say? Matthew records that the disciples, they're amazed at this. The Greek word is thaumadzo. It means shocked or struck with awe. They walk by and they're, they're shocked. How did this happen to this tree? But notice that Jesus, he doesn't answer their question. Jesus rarely answers the question that's asked in the way that it's asked. Because he has, he has a, a plan for how he wants things to go. He doesn't tell them how the tree withers because it's very clear in just a second that it was because of him. But rather, it also becomes clear to them, this is a sign of judgment. And in his response to them about why the fig tree was withered and the fact that it was him that withered the tree, in the response, he offers them an exhortation. He seizes on the the, the sign to teach them something about what he desires from them. Verses 21 and 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. I want to back up and just first talk about what he says, what he says, and then we'll talk about what it means. Verse 21, Jesus says, truly I say to you. Again, it's a sort of a formula. Whenever he says, truly I say to you, it's, it's pointing to the seriousness and the, the soberness of what he's about to say. He always prefaces important teachings with this phrase. And the first part of the statement, it refers to faith. And he states it both positively and negatively. He says, if you have faith, that's positive, right? And then he says, and do not doubt. And Mark adds, do not doubt in your heart. Again, doubting is negative. So if you have faith and don't doubt from your heart. And then he says, there's a prescription here for the disciples who manifest true faith and and trusting in God and don't doubt him. He says, if you have this kind of faith that doesn't doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, i.e. doing what I just did to the fig tree. But even, he says, if you say to the mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. Now, I want to note here two miraculous and powerful works. The first is the miraculous cursing of the fig tree. Now, we don't have any record of 
any of the disciples in their ministry cursing trees. But the implication is, if they manifested the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about, they would be able to perform those kinds of tasks. And we do see them throughout the course of their ministry, in the book of Acts and so on, doing powerful and amazing signs based on their faithfulness to God. But then Jesus ups the ante. He doesn't talk about just a tree that's planted in the ground. He goes a lot bigger than that. And I want you to keep in mind where they are. They're standing here next to and on on the side of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, it's a a large mountain ridge in Jerusalem to the east, standing about 2,700 feet above sea level. So this is not a small little hill. It's a pretty good size mount of rock here. And then we also take note of another landmark, the Dead Sea. On the other hand, it sits on the west bank near the Jordan, and that is 1,400 feet below sea level. Perhaps I I heard a fact this week, it's the the lowest place in, in the entire world at the bottom of that sea in terms of land mass. And so you have these two images here. You have this large mountain ridge, the Mount of Olives, and then you have this sort of the depths of the the Dead Sea. And the imagery is this, of picking up this entire Mount of Olives, this massive structure here, this mound of of rock here, taking the entire mountain and catapulting it into the Dead Sea. It's an impossible task, isn't it? Of course, we also have no record of the disciples doing any of this. They don't move any mountains in their ministry. And so this is meant to be taken metaphorically, which Jesus often does. And I should add, it's metaphorical for them. It's not metaphorical for him. We know that when he returns, according to Zechariah, that he's actually going to split a mountain in two. I'll I'll tease you with that fact and we'll cover it some other time, right? But he's talking about, there's something bigger here, he's talking about exercising genuine faith that trusts in God for all things small and big. That's the idea. So trusting in God, having great faith to do great things. But then he adds prayer to this. Look at this in verse 22. He says, and all things you ask in prayer, here's the trusting part, believing you will receive. In other words, we're talking about faithful prayer and prayerful faith. See, the disciples would not need to be great men in order to do great things. Rather, they would need to have great faith in a great God, and then all things would be possible. See, for the disciples, they would need to have great faith to travel the world and preach the gospel. They'd have to have great faith to heal the sick and cast out demons. And when they suffered persecution, they would need to have great faith and no doubting that God would deliver them at the proper time. This is not something that only the apostles do, by the way. This is something that that we're called on to do as well. Not to be great men and great women, but rather to have great faith in a great God. That is what makes a Christian a Christian. Not that I'm so great, It's that God is so great. We too must have faith, a faith that trusts in the Lord and doesn't doubt. In fact, it's this kind of faith by which we are fruitful. Whereas to the contrary, Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says that prayer that is faithless is fruitless. But it's by faith that we trust in Christ for salvation. 
And it's by faith that we live every day, praying for repentance and wisdom and sanctification. And how do we know what we are to do? How do I know, O oh Lord, what I'm supposed to do from day to day? Well, James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Listen to this. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. Sound familiar? Let him ask with faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And so here's what we do. We go to the Lord and we say, Lord, I'm going to trust you, but I hope you don't let me down. Right? Oh, Lord, I believe I can do this. I believe I can live righteously for you. But oh, and then you get all nervous and you start to panic and fear. Why does Jesus instruct the disciples about prayer and faith in the wake of cursing the fig tree? Because at the first glance, it seems like these two things have nothing to do with each other, do they? Well, remember, prayer and faith were specifically the things that were lacking in Israel and why they were apostate. That's why. Remember, Jesus said that the temple was specifically to be a house of what? Prayer. The temple is a house of prayer. And yet they had profaned it by their greed and by their robbery. What about faith? Remember, on the day that Jesus rode into the city, his followers were hailing him to be the Messiah. But the leaders of Israel, did they have faith and trust in him? No, what did they do? They doubted him. And it was also clearly in front of them that Jesus is Lord. And yet they had no faith. They had only doubting in him. So prayer and faith were banished in Israel. Yet without faith, there can be no fruit. And so Jesus demonstrates through this sign what had been true in Israel for years, that they were spiritually dead, a tree full of leaves and yet no fruit. Let me ask, how do we apply this to ourselves? Because that's the thing. Not every single verse is specifically about us, but every single verse in the Bible does apply to us in some way. We can draw application. We can draw out implications for our lives, can't we? And so what does this mean? How do we manifest mountain-moving faith that doesn't doubt? Well, for some, this mountain, as we're talking about, metaphorically... Maybe it's a seemingly impossible situation that you find yourself in. Maybe it's a difficult task that you have to do and you're not sure how to do it. Maybe it's a sizable debt that you're worried about paying. Or maybe you have a terrifying diagnosis. Maybe you're sick with something and it just seems too big for you right now. Or maybe it's some other overwhelming problem or relationship. Let me ask, are you trusting in yourself to make it through to the other side. You know, there's, always, there's this old saying that I've heard a million times, the teacher is silent during the test. That's garbage. It's garbage, I'm sorry. The teacher is not silent. He's speaking to you in the midst of the trial. The problem is we don't listen. We go through trials and difficulty and suffering. I hope that you're here, Lord. What are you talking about? Who do you think you put you into the trial? Who do you think brought you through all of this? 
No, if you listen and look at the scriptures and have faith with no doubting, you'll see his hand holding you as you go through. He's not waiting on the other side. He's walking with you. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. So stop thinking that God is somehow abandoning you in the trial. He's right there with you. Do you trust him? Do you believe that he's there with you? Because here's the thing. If you don't believe he's there with you, to you, it's as though he's not. And you'll have no faith. You'll have no assurance. You'll have no strength. But to know, God, I know you're with me. So help me to see you step by step along the way. That's faith with no doubting. Or maybe you're, the, the, the mountain you're dealing with is an unsaved loved one who has gone so far off the deep end that you're fearing that they're lost. All of us have friends and family and children and parents and spouses and other people in our lives. And it seems like, oh Lord, there's just no hope for them, right? And we get so afraid, we get so concerned. Let me ask you the question. Do you trust that God is powerful enough to save them? Because here's the thing. God doesn't save good people. He saves sinners. And the greater the sinner, the greater the salvation when they receive it. He doesn't have good people to work with. All he has is sinners like us to redeem, right? We forget this sometimes because we're the church. We're not holy people in the intrinsic value. No, we're set apart for God's purposes, but we're redeemed, forgiven people. That's why we sing and praise and rejoice. We're no better than anybody else in the world. The difference is that we have Christ, and he has redeemed us and saved us. And so do you trust? Yes, this person's off the deep end, but do you trust that God can save them? And if you do, you'll pray for them. And you look for opportunities to witness to them. And if they tell you, stop talking about this Jesus, I don't want to hear you anymore, guess what? God can use somebody else. So trust him. Don't stop praying as though a person's far gone and there's no hope for them. Don't do that. Because some of you were far gone and God took pity on you. I know he did with me. Or maybe the mountain that you're up against is your own sinfulness. Maybe it's an embarrassing or a shameful history. Something that you're, that's bothering you. It's been bothering you for all your entire life. An unconfessed sin. Or maybe it's a nagging sin pattern. Or maybe it's an addiction. And in the moment you feel like, I'm just never going to get rid of this. It's too big. And you begin to glorify the struggle. And everywhere you go, it's, oh Lord, I'm besieged by my sinfulness. If only I could just get rid of this thing. But the problem is that we start to believe that our sins are too big to be forgiven by a great God. And we rob Him of the, 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 the salvation that we are trying to receive because we don't accept forgiveness. Do you see what I'm talking about? He's saying, I'm willing to forgive, but we say, oh no, Lord, you couldn't possibly forgive this. And we spurn Him. Have faith. If you confess your sins... And if you trust in the finished work of Christ, any and all sins, no matter how great they are, can be forgiven. Look at David, a man after God's own heart. We go to David all the time, poor guy, because of his horrendous sinfulness. And if you, I mean, you look at his whole life, and you say, if God can forgive him for that, 
for adultery and murder, he can forgive me too. So, brothers and sisters, your sins are not so large and so gargantuan. Your sinfulness is not such a large mountain that it cannot be tossed into the sea. So here's what you do. You pray and say, Lord, please toss my sin into the sea and forgive me. And then walk in forgiveness. Trust him that it's been forgiven. And don't go back to it. Reject it. Live by faith, beloved. Now, how are we even able to do this? Because we're, we're weak people, aren't we? I know I am. I'm the king of weakness here. How is this even possible? Jesus Christ came to earth, the perfect God, the perfect man, lived righteously and sinlessly among us. And he went to the cross and he bore all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our curse. And when he died, the curse died with him. And when he rose, he burst forth from the tomb, life in his veins, and gave life to all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Friends, you can be saved because Jesus Christ is the Savior. You trust him, not yourself. You don't trust in your own good works. You trust in his finished work. That's what it means to be saved, to trust in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. I want to close in John chapter 15. I want to see this here. John 15. This is in the upper room discourse here. The final, the night before he is betrayed and and killed on the cross. Only a, a few days after cursing the fig tree. Jesus here is instructing his disciples on what it means to remain in him. And to be faithful in him. And it's in this that we see not only the same kind of a metaphor here, but this is what we see life really consists of here. John chapter 15, these are the words of Jesus. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me remains in me. And I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. See, just like with the fig tree, the fruitless limbs are destroyed in the judgment. Now notice he doesn't say, if you have a little fruit, if the buds are are slow to grow. He doesn't talk about that in those terms. He's talking about those who bear no fruit. 
No evidence of regeneration, no evidence of salvation, no evidence of new life. If you're sitting in church and you're calling yourself a Christian, but nothing has changed in you ever, I would seriously question your salvation. Ponder this. Am I different now after Christ has redeemed me than I was before? And if you can't see any difference at all whatsoever, go back to the gospel and ask yourself the question. Do I really believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior? Have I really confessed my sins to Him? And have I received forgiveness for my sins? That's where you must begin. But beloved, let me assure you, if you have been saved, and the fruit is slow growing, but it's there, be encouraged. Because if you abide, if you remain in Christ, and just keep on walking, don't stop, don't look left or right, don't look backwards, keep on walking, he says you'll bear much fruit. Because apart from him, we can't do anything. And so this is not a matter of, oh, I don't think my fruit is enough. No, this is a matter of, Lord, I know I have fruit, but I want more. I want my life to be my spiritual service of worship to you. I want to be fruitful for you. I want to work hard. I want to, I want to work myself into the grave serving you and rest in you when I see you. Work hard for Christ. I don't mean workaholism where you just tear yourself down into oblivion. I'm talking about giving your all, giving your heart and abiding and remaining in Jesus. Then you'll bear much fruit. And in that, God is glorified. But we must be a people of faithful prayer and prayerful faith. And so let me ask you, do you know Jesus? Do you know Him as your Savior? Have you ever really confessed your sins? I'm not talking about in some kind of a spiritual, ethereal, sort of out there way. I'm talking about going home, sitting down, opening your Bible, start in the Psalms, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, and actually saying, Lord, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and against you and you alone have I sinned. Forgive me. And in that repentance, tell him, I trust, I believe that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of the living God. I believe that he has saved me from my sins. So Lord, please redeem me, forgive me, and help me to walk in righteousness. And the Bible says that if you believe and don't doubt, you have salvation, you have a life in his name. That's my prayer for all of you this morning if you don't yet know him. And for those of you who do, beloved, keep on walking. Don't stop. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we read stories like the cursing of the fig tree. And I know that my heart quivers a little bit because I know that you're going to come back one day. In every single place that you do not see faithfulness, you will curse and you'll judge. And woe to those who are judged on that day. But yet, Lord, for those that you have redeemed, for those that you have saved, not by ourselves, because of our own deeds, but because of your graciousness and your mercy to us,
but we who belong to you, who are your people, who are adopted, we will see your day and rejoice. We who desire to abide and remain in you, we will see that day and rejoice because that will be the ultimate and final day of our salvation. We will see you face to face. And we will look you in the eyes and say, Oh Lord, I've been waiting for you my whole life. And I'm so happy to see you. And he will say, you will say, as the Bible repeats, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter the joy of your master. Lord, that is our desire to hear those words, that we are faithful to you. Don't have any doubt that we remain in you, that we will not be cursed like the tree, but we will be blessed because of your abundant saving grace and mercy. O Lord, you are a great God. You are worthy of our faith. You are worthy of our repentance because you are holy. And so, Lord, let this profession of ours be true. And Lord, if there is anyone who does not know you, if their faith has been a sham up to this point, if they have simply been religious, Lord, would you break their heart, even right now, break their heart down, convict them of their sin and their their hypocrisy, and give them, grant them true, vibrant, earnest, repentant, trusting faith. Thank you, Lord, for your salvation. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.